Welcome to the Joy Venture Podcast, a show where dreamers and doers share stories of discovering, developing, and spreading their joy with the world. I'm your host, Thad Devassi, along with Jeremy Slagle. In this episode, Jeremy and I get to sit down with Bill Lilly. And before we dive in, we want to talk a little bit about how we came across Bill and just a little bit about our conversation before you start listening. So, uh, Jeremy, um, tell us a little bit about uh, our audience, a little bit about how you met Bill and how we got to this point to have him on the podcast. A few years ago, I picked up some vintage fountain pens at a, um, at a yard sale. So I found a place just right here in Clintonville that repairs all the antique fountain pens. And I went in and uh, talked with a gentleman in there. And he basically said, look, if you ever want to learn how to use that thing, you should take a class from this guy. And he basically handed me a card. And it was Bill Lilly's card. So I thought, okay, you know, that's great. I usually use them to sketch or draw with them because they've got a really cool uh, tip on them. But um, so I followed up and ended up meeting Bill and taking lessons from him from several, for several months on how to properly write script typefaces with an oblique pen holder. And it was really, really great. It taught me a lot about uh, how letter forms are created, how um, script letter forms specifically are created, how they connect, um, how, they're, how to make them consistent. And I, I took a lot away from it. And uh, I've recommended him to probably five or six other people that have taken consistent lessons with him in the past. Yeah, I think it's kind of cool. I mean, here we got this 90-year-old guy, right, that we get to talk to today and um, are, are on this podcast. Um, and he is literally teaching 20-year-olds the art of, of script and flourishing, which seems, as, as we'll hear, seems like a, a bygone art. But you know, I know you. I know a lot of the designers you're talking about. Um, I'm seeing more and more in the design community on hand lettering and just how actually how relevant his work is and how it's um, meaningful to the design community. Yeah, and, and one of the things we talked about with him was that a lot of what he was doing was got replaced by technology, namely the typewriter, uh, which then got replaced by the computer. And we're starting to see things come full circle again, where people are kind of looking for the unique and the new. And so we're kind of returning back, and we have been over the last... Uh, several years kind of returning back to that idea of hand created art hand custom lettered uh, pieces a lot of people are making full careers doing that right now and he's back in demand again by a lot of people I know several really great designers here in the central Ohio area that have met with him and it's changed their career so I think one thing to sort of kind of prep our listeners on is there's a, a lot of giggling and laughter in, in, in this podcast. And it's because Bill Lilly is a character. He's a funny guy. Oh yeah. And, um, uh, his facial expressions were great. Um, there's a lot going on in our conversation that you just don't get to see that had both of us just laughing at him, um, not at him, but with him because he's <laughs> laughing. And so it's just, you know, it's important to know that because, um, it, it's not to be disrespectful to him. It was just a, it was just a fun conversation. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, like learning how to do the script, uh, work has been part of it, but getting to know Bill has been a real, 
uh, really awesome thing for me. And so when I recommend them to other people, you know, one of the things I usually let them know is that you're going to make a friend as well in this process because he's just such a friendly guy and just really excited to see another, you know, generation of people that are kind of following and, and interested in the stuff that, that he was learning back in the forties and fifties. Yeah. So I think the, the, the really cool thing, if, if people you know, look back onto the, onto the joy venture website on Bill's podcast, um, we literally were in what an eight by 10, like spare bedroom that he's converted into his like shrine, his, his, um, studio, if you will. And there's just beautiful work all over the place. Um, so we're, we're kind of cramped in this tiny little space. The, the thing that is interesting about this conversation is from the moment we walked in the door, Bill is on and talking to us. So there's, there's parts of this conversation where he's referring back to things that we've already talked about for over half an hour. <laughs> Before like, the mics were on. Yeah, yeah. we got to get the mic on. We got to get this on tape. So um, you're not missing anything if he refers to something that's not there. It's just the way the conversation flows. And I think it's just really important to recognize that this guy's kind of a national treasure. He's 90 years old and he does, he is as sharp as a tack. I was kind of in awe of this like five foot, you know, five foot flat, you know, man that, uh, yeah. full of life. Um, you're going to hear in the end of the podcast, how this guy stays fit and you know, physically active. It kind of blows my mind at yeah. this man and, and what he's done. And, and the story, the story that we, that he tells, of how he got to this place. So it's, um, you know, we just want to give a little context to the really special individual we have here on the podcast today. Yeah. I think the biggest takeaway for me is, is that you're never too old to find your joy in life. Yeah. Without a doubt. He is, he is a guy that I feel, you know, is twice my age and could maybe run circles around me if I'm not careful. Yeah. I mean, and just the fact that he didn't really find the notoriety that he has today or the students that he has today or the opportunities he has today until after he had retired from his career. Yeah, that, that is so. the key takeaway. You are never too old, and it is never too late to pursue your joy. So one thing I think we need to clarify is Bill, Bill talks about the Zanarian school or you know being at Zanarian and, and what that means. And um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the Zanarian College of Penmanship is? Yeah, um, Zanarian was a college of penmanship. It's all they did. They taught people how to write, which is really, talk about specialized vocational school. That's pretty amazing. Um, they, they were downtown Columbus, Ohio, and I believe that they were right on the corner of Goodale Park. And I uh, believe they were founded in 18, 1888, is 1888 when, was mm-hmm. where they, they were founded. They, they became the Zaner Blozer Company a few years later. But uh, if anybody that's ever taken handwriting classes in elementary school where you have the two lines and the, the dotted line in the middle, that is the writing system that was patented and developed by the Zaner Blozer Company. So everybody that's in earshot of this has some experience with the Zaner Blozer company, whether you realize it or not. Bill talks about his time there towards the end of the life of that college, and uh, they closed their doors sometime in the, the mid-60s. Yeah, you know, I think it's a good perspective because Bill does make that reference. We just want to give a little historical background, and it's right here in, in our hometown, so it's kind of cool. I'm Bill Lilly. I'm the senior master penman in this country. That doesn't mean a lot, but it sounds good. <laughs> it means well, a lot to me. So it doesn't mean a lot, but so tell us, what, what does it mean to get that kind of title? What, what, what is it to be a master penman? I feel honored. Yeah. 
with the title, and that's as far as I'll go. <laughs> but uh, uh, I worked for an international harvester for uh, 20 years, and you had to work 30 years to get full retirement. So I had to stay closed after I had 20 years, and I had to take a prorated retirement. And so I went to uh, Lane Avenue. Uh, my wife saw an ad in the paper. I needed uh, some kind of a part-time job to supplement my retirement. And uh, so she found this ad uh, for a van driver. And Lane Avenue didn't have a, a very large parking lot for customers, so they had to save all that for customers and park their 500 employees at that time down at West Campus Lot. So I had two vans running back and forth, hauling employees back and forth to work. So when I took that job, I had been on it three years, and in 1986, they were having a convention here in Columbus, an International Pimmons Convention, and uh, I was asked to attend by a gentleman from Chicago who, who was the president of the convention at that time. He called me on the phone at, on Sunday night at nine o'clock and gave me an invitation. He, this gentleman that had come to see me, told them about me. And so this president says on the phone, there's a gentleman here who are telling all these people coming in for the convention about you and we're anxious to meet you and see what you can do. And I said, uh, I thank you for the invitation, but no thank you. He said, I don't, I don't understand what you mean. I said, I mean, it's hot. It's in July. It's 22 miles from where I live. I've got three cars in the family, but I don't want to come. Yeah. And he says, I've got a brand new car. It's air conditioned. I'll be glad to come and get you Monday morning at 8 o'clock in order to get you up here in time for the beginning of the convention. And if you only want to stay an hour, I'll take you home when you want to go. I says, you're on. <laughs> so how did how did it get to that point? Like, how did he, you hadn't been that, publicly that, using your skills? That, that gentleman that came to see me from out east told him about me. He belonged to the convention, and he, he told him about me. I didn't know that even – I'd lost track of anything connected – you know, just because I didn't think I was going to ever do anything with it. So, but I kept up with it because I enjoyed doing it. So let's back up a second. So you're retired after 20 years from International Harvester. Yeah. You go and get this job at, mm -hmm. at Lane Avenue and uh, driving. Tell us how all this. So you've got this whole. You've got this completely different career. Yeah, and then. Yeah. But, but yet you've got guys calling you about your penmanship. Talk yeah. about okay, let's let's go back a little bit here in time. How do they know about your penmanship? Okay, that's an interesting question because in the twenty years that I worked for Harvester, nobody knew yeah. that I did script. I didn't, I didn't tell anybody. Kept it to myself. Only my closest friends here, which were a handful, mm -hmm. that I would tell. Okay, mm -hmm. but nobody at Harvester. But then when the newspaper article came out, everybody knew about it. So tell us how this newspaper article happened. Uh, when I went to the convention. Okay. Yeah. So, so you met a guy, and then the guy told another guy. 
He and told the guy. The, he told the the group of of uh, conventioners, "Is it coming in?" From, from and he the, told them you were going to be there without. No, he didn't. He said they should have me there. Got it. Okay. <laughs> but then, yeah. so then he twists your arm, yeah. and he gets you there, and the, then you the, end up in the newspaper article. Yeah, this this president of the convention who was from Chicago. He's the one that got me to come up there on the phone, but he come and got me that that Monday morning himself. So you've had this sort of private life yeah. of, of of penmanship yeah. that all of a sudden gets exposed. Yeah. And somebody shines a line on it and yeah. it blows up. Yeah, pretty much. It right? sure does. It, but before the convention, I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. I just don't want to blow myself up too big here. Uh, but everybody, friends or whoever that saw my script, raved over it. Okay, mm-hmm. that you you would think I was somebody the way they talked, you know. And I'm not, you know. You see what I am? I'm just a little guy. <laughs> huh? I know better. I've spent time with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's why. That's why we wanted to have you have you on to do this because, but, uh, uh, you know, and when I went to the convention. When I got there, he whispered to me as we was entering the conference room. There was a hundred and hundred and twenty people there. I didn't know one of them. And he says, whispers to me, he says, "Not." He asked me before we left the house. He said, "Oh, I was walking out the door." He says, "Where's your work?" Oh, I said, "I, I forgot." I so I come back in. I had, had a folder, and I had about thirty pieces of work, none in color then, all mm. black and white. Okay, so. Get up there, and he says, "Now you go to the table there in the back of the conference room and lay your work out. So when we have a coffee break at ten o'clock, we can all see your work." I said, "Okay." So I go back there because the thing's already in session. Somebody's giving a presentation, and I go back there, and I'm thinking to myself, "Why did I let him talk me into coming here? These people aren't going to be interested in what I do. You know, I'm wasting my time. I don't know anybody." I, I'm thinking that while I'm laying my stuff out. Sure. And then I wanted to get as far away from it as I could, so I went clear to the front of the conference room over the corner and stood. <laughs> he says, at coffee break time, he says, ladies and gentlemen, we have William Lilly in our midst. I know you're anxious to see his work. I'm anxious to see it. We've heard some tall tales about him. Let's see if he's got what it takes. <laughs> That's how he broke the... They uh, took the break, opened the break room. Well, nobody went to see my work. Everybody started socializing, <laughs> which suited me, except three men, three older men, ambling their way back toward there. And when they got back there, almost simultaneously, they said, Oh my God, real loud. Then everybody goes, by. Yeah. <laughs> President comes running up to me and he says, They won't know if you'll sell any of that work. I said, I'll sell all of it. <laughs> so you better get back. To work. <laughs> I was shoving bills and checks in my pockets. There you go. They, I didn't know whether I was, you know, pricing it right or not. <laughs> and uh, I got kind of excited about that. Absolutely. So I, after I sold everything, I slipped out in the hall, and called my wife. <laughs> I said, "You won't believe what's happening." <laughs> and uh, so, so then the, the president says to me. At the end of the coffee break, he says, uh, "You know, they're really wanting to hear what what, anything you've got to say about this stuff." 
he says, uh, you've got their attention 100%. I said, okay. He said, would you be willing to take questions uh, this afternoon? And I said, sure. I said, I'm not, I'm not very smart, but I do know this business like the back of my hand, so I'm not worried about that. He says, good. So they had me to answer questions after lunch. Now, at lunch, though, first of all, when they broke for lunch, an old gentleman come walking toward me, and I thought, now, what's he coming toward me for? When he opened his mouth, I knew who he was. He'd gone to the scenario with me, Joe Kowalski from Cleveland. And he, he was 15 years older than me, and he was like a father to me while he was going there. He had money, and I didn't, and he'd take me out to eat and kind of look after me, you know. And I was young, 23 years old. And he said, though many opened his mouth, I knew it was Joe, and I couldn't believe it. And Joe and I hugged and we cried. We hadn't seen one for 20 years. And so then after all, I spent two hours answering questions. And then they wanted to see me write. So they had this big table, had a picture of ice water, had ink and pens. I didn't have any of my stuff with me. I picked out the pen I wanted to use and the ink I wanted to use and so forth, you know. And I'm getting ready, setting things up to write. Joe, he's he's been attending this convention every year, knows all these people. Mm-hmm. And first thing he says, and right before I'm getting ready to write, he says, ladies and gentlemen, Bill Lilly writes just like E.A. Lepper. That was my main instructor. And he's the, to this day, even though he's six foot under, he's still the idol of all penmen. Mm. And that was my instructor. And he says he writes just like E.A. Lepper. And they said, oh, wow, boy. And they couldn't. I said, that's enough, Joe. Don't say any more. Mm. <laughs> Don't you want to raise the bar yeah. too high yeah. while you're sitting there ready to write in front of everybody? That's right. Just let the man do his work. Right? That's right. <laughs> so, you know, there's 120 people crowded around that table watching wow. me write. And uh, when I got done, I says, well, I laid the pen down. I said, not bad for a beginner, is it? They said, yeah, right. And they said, unreal. So that afternoon comes the dispatch. <laughs> Interviewed me. Mm-hmm. An article. And uh, let me get the, I've got a couple of copies. I figured you guys might want. I don't know if you've got one or not, uh, Jeremy. You actually moved my bag out of the way. Oh, that's all right. I got them here handy. This is the first copy. Other articles on me, other places, but this is the first article that was done on me. Wow, look at you. <laughs> that is one sharply dressed penman right there. <laughs> so, so this is this is a, a kind of a how the the second phase of of all this started. Like at some point in time, you were a kid running around like everybody else. And yeah. you, somebody saw something in you that said this guy should go and do continuing education. That lady in Penn. Well, but so, but as far as being you know, a child, you know who? At, before, how did you decide to go to the Zenarian Institute? Oh, my dad wanted me after I got out of the service. I was in uh, Germany in all of 1946 in the occupation, right after the war, okay. and uh, World War Two, and. 
when I got home in 47, well, by 49, my dad wanted me to, really wanted me to go to college. I really didn't want to go. But I went just to please him. So I went close to home, 120 miles away, Bowling Green, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And uh, which is a beautiful campus, beautiful college. Couldn't have had a nicer place to go. But I wasn't interested in anything I had except penmanship. They had a course in penmanship at that time that was mandatory for everybody to take for one quarter. Hmm. So I signed up for that first thing for one of my, you know, and I had to sign up for history, math, and English. That was my curriculum. And I excelled in the penmanship class to the point that my instructor made arrangements with my other teachers for him to use me in his other penmanship classes to, so they could see me write on the board. And he just went on about, he said, he's one in a million, one in a million. You, want, you better pay co- close attention. You won't see anything like it again. And I thought, man, what's this man talking about in here? And, and this is just you yeah. writing with, yeah. with no formal, no training at this no. point. Yeah. So, <laughs> after I'd been there a year, he comes over to me and says, young man, you're in the wrong place. Oh, I said, I already know that. I'm done. I'm not coming back. <laughs> he said, I want to tell you where you should be. He told me about Columbus and the Zanarian. He, he was a graduate of the Zanarian back then. G.G. Hmm. Craig. And uh, that's the certificate of burn where it says practical penmanship up there, mm. right over that high wheel yep. bike. That's his certificate that he signed and gave me for penmanship that year. So anyhow, so I got coming to Columbus. That's how I got directed. Well, when I, the first morning that I walked into the classroom, there was only five of us. I'm one of five. I was really blown away. I couldn't mm. believe it. I was expecting a big group, you know. Sure. And I didn't realize that it was about to die out. And I thought, well, but I still want to learn that script. And uh, so I stuck with it for a year and a half and uh, learned old English, flourishing, ornamental writing, but script was my thing. That's what I was really cut out for, and that's the most popular of all of it. So, when I turned down that White House job... Talk about that. Talk about how how that happened. Okay. About 15 years after I left uh, the Zanarian, I get this uh, letter from uh, uh, Sanford L. Fox, who was at that time in charge of the White House, Pemmon at the White House, wanted to know if I'd be interested in a job. To come work at the yeah. White House? Why? I wrote and told him no. <laughs> you, told, you told the White House no? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Wait, wait, wait. Okay, most people, that, that's that's like a, a one in a million shot, right? Yeah, someone getting an offer right. to work at the White House. Why, why did you say no? I figured that, I almost knew you work under pressure, and that wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. Plus, it didn't pay that good then. Yeah. It was uh, civil service. Anyhow, 
So then, it wasn't long after that, that a gentleman called me on the phone from Washington, D.C., who owned and operated an engrossing studio doing this kind of work. And he heard about me. He was looking for a scriptwriter, and he inquired with the White House, and they told him about me, maybe trying to get me. And he said, would you send me some samples of your work? I said, sure. I thought this being a private deal might be all right. So I sent him two or three samples of my script. He immediately called me on the phone. He said, I'd like to come to Columbus and talk to you about coming to work for me. I said, come right ahead. So he and his wife both came on a Saturday morning, drove down from Washington, 400 miles. They got here about 10 in the morning. I left early. Really a nice couple, nice people. Polished. And I thought, maybe, maybe this is going to work. <laughs> we spent three hours talking about me working for him. We couldn't get together at all on the money. Mm. Finally, I was getting—I didn't want to be rude or you know—but I was getting tired, and I said, "You know, sir, I'll tell you what I'll do. Let's go in the dining room there and sit down side by side." I'll put a bottle of ink between us. We'll dip out of the same ink. I'll, I've got several pen holders. I'll let you choose what you want. I'll let you choose what we write. I don't know a thing about your skill. But if if I can't beat you by a country mile, I'll come to work for you for less than what you're offering me. You know what he said? Oh, he said, I don't think anybody in this country can match you. So I said, what's the problem? I just can't start it. I said, it's over. Mm. Mm. <laughs> wow. So you've got... But you know, I'll say this, but I don't mean it to be bragging at all. I just, But when I was working at Harvester, I knew without a doubt that I had anybody beating this pen and ink skill. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I knew I had what it takes to be that. Yeah. I knew I had it because I had a very steady hand like a surgeon and had good imagination, healthy imagination for creating ovals and compound curve and all that good stuff. Okay. Anyhow, so after uh, to jump on into another convention that I, well, they started having me doing presentations at the convention every year. And these are different cities every year. Okay. I did them all over the country, and I did workshops all over the country, flying there all the time. Hmm. Four of them in California, two in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, two in Detroit, Michigan, two in uh, Wisconsin, uh, just and a lot of singers everywhere, and one in New York City. That was my biggest one, and um, but. And I, I was just living on high and teaching uh, two classes at Ohio State back to back with a 20 minute break in between the two, two hour classes at night and a class at Upper Arlington and six other classes in different directions of the city. I mean, they had me hopping like crazy. I couldn't <laughs> believe it, you know, and, uh, and made a lot of friends. It's been an amazing journey. 
I met a lot of people, a lot of good people. And a lot of people take private lessons. I've had people from Tokyo, Japan come here and take private lessons. Right here at your house? Yeah. Wow. Ladies have been here twice from Tokyo a week each time. Wow. Yeah, you. when we uh, were taking lessons a couple years ago, you mentioned that there was there would be people, you would just tell me every once in a while, oh, so-and-so is flying yeah. in from Wisconsin or yeah. so-and-so is flying in from wherever. Oh, yeah. And she's going to be Las in Vegas. here for the weekend. They've been here twice from Las Vegas. Wow. When I did a workshop in Las Vegas, I've done two there. One of them, the first one, gentleman flew in from Honolulu, wanted to be in the workshop. And that wasn't unusual. Every workshop I did, somebody was flying in from somewhere, mm -hmm. or some, more than one sometimes. And uh, I'd always make it a point to reward those people that flew in like that. You know, I'd give them a video, free video or mm -hmm. whatever, you know, or a pen holder. I'd make, make these pen stuff. You hand make your yeah, own pens. Yeah, I, I learned to do it on my own, yeah. Wow. So tell us why you make your own pens. And when I left the Zenarian, after about a year, when it, when it was in operation, you could buy pen holders from them. They made them there. Well, after our... Uh, after about uh, six or seven years, after it was out of business, you couldn't get a pen holder, special pen holder anywhere like that. Mm. It's called an oblique because it's got a slant on the nib there. And I got to thinking, and I didn't know anything about woodworking. I got to thinking, boy, I'd like, I'd like to see if I can make a pen holder. So I got a piece of wood, just a piece of scrap wood about that long, and I went and bought me a this was my first idea. I went and bought me a machinist file. It's it's rounded on one side and flat on the other mm -hmm. with good cutting teeth on it. It's about that long. And I put this piece of wood in the vise and I started working with this file. It took me four hours to make my first holder. And it wasn't bad to the point that I had a lady. She had a Ph.D. degree in uh, ancient history. She was taking private lessons at the time, and she was an intellectual, and she's, I showed her this pen holder. She said, oh, Bill, I'd love to have one like that. It's yours for $500. <laughs> I, you know I me, mean? I'm poor, honest Abe here, trying to be fair and square. I said, I'll make you one for 20 bucks. Wow. Oh, she says, please do. So I did. I made another one. <laughs> I thought, man, I, I've got to beat this. This is, this is wearing me out. And I started making holders then, okay? And I got better and better. And uh, I had a good eye for what I was wanting. And so I, to make a long story short, I sold hundreds of holders. My wife says, no, it's more like thousands. I said, well, whatever. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't even trying to sell them. Yeah. And I didn't have to do any sales pitch. It just word of mouth. Sure. A lady called me from, in the early stages, called me from New York City, and she'd heard about them and says, could you describe them to me? I said, ma'am, they're just a holder you dip in the ink and write with it. They're made out of wood. She says, how much are they? I said, $25. Oh, my God. They must be made out of gold. I said, ma'am, you call me. I didn't call you. 
Well, I want one of your holders. Yeah. I said, okay. You're playing hard to get. <laughs> that one did. I don't know. So when she got whatever it, it was, it worked. When she got it, she said, "Call me." She said, "I want another one." Yeah. <laughs> said, "This is beautiful." <laughs> so for somebody that doesn't know how to use an oblique pen holder, how 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 would she get it and then call you back and say, "I want another one." I don't even know that she wanted to use it. I think she she wanted something pretty. They are pretty. Yeah. I, I want to dial back just a minute. You you know you said that your your dad wanted you to go to college. Yeah. You went down there to yeah. uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky. He, by the way, was one of my biggest fans. Well, th- th- talk about that for a second, because uh, you know I think that <clears throat> we, as much as your dad probably did, we have aspirations for our kids. Mm-hmm. You know, we want them to go on to college. We want them right. to be successful. What was it like when when you told your dad, I think I'm going to go back to the Zanarian Institute to learn how to do penmanship? Okay, he was disappointed when I left Bowling Green. Yeah. But when I told him about this, he was all for it. All for it. And when I got that certificate, he thought it was something else. Yeah. Then they did a big magazine article on me. So, and, so it's nineteen fifty one two when you get when you graduate. Yeah, okay, uh-huh. when you graduate from Zanarian, what is it that you know? I think that at least in today's day and age, we think we get the degree, we get we get the credentials. Now go get the job. Yeah, you didn't do that. No. So, w- no, talk no. a little bit about that. About you know, most of us think about going and getting specialized training to go uh-huh. do that work. You didn't right. do that. No, I wanted to. Yeah. But I just could not tell people, look what I can do, you know, mm-hmm. look how good I am. I yeah. knew I couldn't do that. But you had a ton of people saying, you're, you're among the best of the best yeah. Oh, yeah. at this. And you still didn't do it? No. Wow. Not until it was just shoved in my lap. Yeah. Like that lady. And so really it took somebody else oh, yeah. to say, it kind of, kind of grab you by the shirt collar and go, That's right. Bill, come with me. You, you're, you're too good to be on the sidelines. She set me up. Yeah. I didn't have to do anything. She set me up. Mm-hmm. All I had to do was accept it. And I did. I wasn't losing anything by doing it, you know? And so you, I, I just, you know, for those who are listening, I just want to, <laughs> you've had this, you're a master penman, mm-hmm. and you've had the skill your whole life. Even to when you walk into a classroom in college, having never, no formal training, yeah. and they say, this guy is amazing. Yeah. So but you didn't start doing this until after you retired. That's right. Long time after, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you worked for Harvester for how long? 20 years. And you've and so after that is when you were kind of rediscovered for your skills. Right. And one of the things that you said that I thought was really interesting is you walked into a classroom and there were five kids in there. And then you said, I didn't realize that it was on its, on its way out. What did yeah. you mean by that? Oh, they were out. In the mid-60s, that one, two, many years after mm-hmm. I left. Uh, but they were still, what kept them in business, they were still doing a huge business, corresponding courses. They were giving out and selling a lot of supplies. They had all kinds of stuff you needed for this. And uh, the two instructors, when I turned the job down to the White House, stood there holding my certificate in their hand. They just graded. 
stood there and shook their heads like this. They couldn't believe it. So, so what do you, what do you blame, or what do you see as the cause for what happened in the '60s when, when all of a sudden there wasn't a demand that there used to be? I thought because I had the skill that I had that I should make big bucks. Mm. That's what I thought. And when I, when I asked them what it paid, I don't remember the figure. I just remember it was equal to a truck driver's union skill job pay. Because mm. you got a gold you got a I got gold the best you can get, yeah. Yeah. And today I'm the only gold seal Zanarian living. Wow. Yeah. So, but I guess my question, like culturally, what happened culturally in the United States that brought that school to a, to a stop? Oh, I think uh, computers and everything. In the 60s? Well, I mean, it was leading up to that little by little. Yeah. Because uh, at that point in time, a family would have a typewriter. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. But I, nobody I, had a computer at home yet. No. But typewriter played a part in it, yeah. Because I, even today, I type any letter I write. I don't write in this stuff. A lot of these people that I've taught do write, and they'll sign their checks in it. Nobody's paying me to sign a check like that. So, so huh? then my question is: I'm not wanting to show off. Yeah. <laughs> so, so here we are, though. Here we are in 2017 now, right? Mm-hmm. There's been a resurgence. People, people are flying from around the world. To take lessons from you, what do you attribute that to? They think I'm the best. That's what they say. Well, they know you're the best, but yeah. I guess my question is: is what's raising the demand for that again? What? Why do you think people? I think I've been instrumental in in uh, creating a surge in this, an interest in this. Yeah. Because if I go online, I can find Lily Script yeah. online. I know. <laughs> Tell me what tell me what defines Lily script versus other types of uh, penmanship script that I can find online. Well, I've been called. I'm not. I'm not saying I am. I've been called a genius when it comes to my pen and ink. So, but what is it that makes there? There's a very specific type. Uh, you'd use you draw with. Is it is it copper? It's not copper plate. No. That's they've nicknamed that for years, copper plate, and I've I've had a I've had a run in with with a lot of penmen and calligraphers about that. And it don't matter to me if they call it. I'm just telling them that's not what it is. What is what is it called that you you write in, in grocer's in, in grocer script. script? Okay, so what's the difference between typical and grocer script and what Lily script would be considered? Mine's uh, got a beat. <laughs> <laughs> so, is it because you've created some custom characters? You you do things a little differently. Yeah, much more graceful, much more elegant. Uh, but you know, uh, I know right now with the script, which is my thing, and I'm one of the very few, if not. There's probably a handful people that can do flourished script. That's the ultimate. Pardon me for saying it, but I'm I'm the ultimate flourished script writer. 
And that's what I'm known for all over the world. And uh, my envelopes and correspondence have become collector's items. Hmm. I, I've got one of yours yeah. prominently displayed in my office. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm still doing them because people apparently want them, you know. But hey, Tell us again. How, you, said, you said you were close to 90. Yeah. How old are you? I'll be 90 next month. You'll be 90 next month. Yeah. It, it, and we talk about... Gra- I did. Grace and yeah. and steady hand, and at ninety, you're still you're still doing yeah. yeah. And my hand's not as steady as it once was. Yeah. But I had some people here wanting to see me write not long ago. Uh, it was last year, and uh, it was uh, four ladies and a man, and the man was a Japanese, and uh, he really wanted to see me write. So I had him sit right there where you are. I wrote, and he turned to the women and he says, God, I can't believe how steady his hand is. Well, I said, it's not as steady as it used to be. <laughs> but uh, I still enjoy doing it, but I like to take my time. I don't like to be rushed, mm. you know? I take my good old time. That won't work at the White House. Yeah. I've already learned that a few years ago. I met one of the White House penmen there at one of the conventions. Name's Rick Muffler, and he's a really nice guy. And I told him about my experience, and he says, "Well, he says I can tell you this much: you work under the gun all the time." Mm. I, I said, "I figured that." Yeah. He said they pay good now, but he says you work under the gun. So for for the White House, there there's there's a historical elegance yeah. of, of the ty- type of document that you'd yep. be working on there. Yep. For the most part. You know, people don't appreciate the work that, right. and, and, I, and I mean that with the utmost oh, that's respect. Right. That yeah. the average person doesn't respect that. Like, I'll just print yeah. out a piece of paper. I'll do whatever. To the point where we're we're seeing, even in elementary school, <clears throat> excuse me, even in elementary school, we're seeing where there there's debates mm-hmm. about whether or not we're going to teach handwriting right. of children. When you have people coming. And Jeremy, you know, being an artist himself, do you see more artists coming to you that want to learn how to do what you do? Or is it everyday people? I'm curious, the people that are coming to you today. It's both. Is it both? But um, every, I mean, every single private student that I've had, and I've had a lot of them from all over the country, Mm -hmm. every one of them without exception, when they sit down here to start the first lesson, After 20 minutes into the first lesson, they'll say, I can't believe how much I've learned wrong, because they've learned the basics from somebody else, you know. And when they leave here after a few days, they'll say, God, I came. I'm so glad I came. I've learned so much, and it's just made a difference. Well, it does. When you you learn it right, you know. And... It's just been a, you know, if it, if it went to my head, if compliments went to my head, my head would have done burst a long time ago. <laughs> huh? I mean it. Mm-hmm. And I say that humbly, uh, but I've been given titles that I don't think I really deserve. So but what's next for you? I, I'm waiting on summer. How long is it for summer? <laughs> Not fast enough. <laughs> it's been cold. I'm still biking a lot in the summer. Yeah, I did 800 miles last summer. Wow, 
Now, do you're, have you hung the rollerblades up? Last year. That was your last summer yeah. rollerblading? Yeah. And, well, because last time I talked with you, you stopped jumping off ramps with your rollerblades. Yeah. Because your daughter told you to stop. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I loved rollerblading when I could get out there and do it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I moved, boy. And I jumped curves and all that stuff. Oh, my gosh. And... I got to where I was. So I had cataracts removed last year, and they was in for the surgery. He was asking me some questions, and I don't know what kind of activities I do and so forth, because they, they knew who I older was. And I said, well, I, I used to rollerblade, but I quit this year. And he said, well, why'd you quit? I said, because I was skating like an old man, and I couldn't stand it. Well, they, thought that, they got to laughing. <laughs> Do you ride your penny farthing anymore? No. I'd love to, but my wife and daughter just raise it hell if I even think about it. <laughs> well, that's a long way to fall. That yeah, is, yeah. Yeah, it sure is. And I'm getting shorter, <laughs> which makes it tougher. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, all those good things, I'm telling you, I'm glad I can still do the script. And I try to, try to stay in good shape. You know, as good as I can. And uh, uh, I'm going down, though, because last year I did, I mean, the year before last, I did uh, 1,600 miles on the bike. And the year before that, I did 2,000. So I was kind of cutting it down. And old age just really creeps in on you. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, I'm not 90 years old, and I didn't put anywhere near 800 miles on my bike last year. (laughs) But, you know. It don't affect, old age don't affect me like it does most people. Most people just gives in to it and says, what the hell, you know. Mm. Makes me mad. I resent old age, and I'm mm. fighting it every day. Good for you. Oh, yeah. I work out in the basement. Uh, I'm fighting it. I say, damn it, I'm going to stay young. I told my doctor here not long ago, apparently, I said, I'm going to make, this winter I'm going to make myself young again. He laughed his belly. You wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Bill for inviting Jeremy and I into his studio and into his his world of penmanship and letting us have a sneak peek at what the post-retirement life has been for Bill Lilly. If you want to see more of Bill's work, you can go online and search Bill Lilly. He does not have a website, but you can also take out check out the page that we have on joyventure.net and see more of Bill's work. To hear more podcasts or read our posts that are meant to nudge the dreamer in all of us to become the doer we were all meant to be, visit us at joyventure.net. And if you're discovering or developing your joy, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, remember, never stop discovering. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.